whether or not the miracles of Jesus took place or not isn't really uh, a debate uh, that happened during the first century. So I just want to, let's just put that out there straight away. Okay, because I think sometimes we come to the miracles of Jesus and we want to do one of a few different things, depending on the perspective that we're coming from. One might be, ah, miracles, miracles never happened. Jesus doing miracles, no chance. And people try and disprove that it took place. And then you get others who come and um, they say, well, oh, wow, these were, these were great acts of power, great acts of love, uh, and the miracles in themselves are amazing. So why, do, why don't we focus on those miracles? Because we want to also do those miracles, and there's some truth to that. But actually, that's not the main point of the miracles. We know that miracle in Greek is, is semeos, and semeos doesn't just mean miracle, it means sign. Yes, it means miracle, but it also means sign. And that's because miracles are signs pointing to the miracle maker. And so it's slightly different when we get to Jesus, because no longer is it God who is outside of nature that is breaking into nature and revealing that he is supernatural. But actually God has become a man and so takes on the form of nature And at the same time is doing miracles as God. God working through him. And so we have to look at this slightly differently to what we might look at next week when we talk about miracles for today and what the apostles saw happen in the first century. But also looking back to the prophets and looking back at some of the miracles we've already looked at, like the very first one, the miracle of life, that life itself is a miracle. And uh, so I just I, I want to kind of just get this bit out of the way where we want to kind of question whether the miracles happened or not. Because actually, like I said, in the first century, there's no real debate about that. Jewish scholars, people who opposed Jesus, weren't coming and saying, oh, well, he didn't perform these miracles. No, they're saying that he was a, a great teacher and a miracle worker. But the question was whether, whether or not he was the Messiah or not. And so what's really interesting is that John when he writes in his gospel about the miracles, says that these miracles testify to him being the Christ, being the Messiah. And so what we need to ask is, what makes him more than a prophet in these miracles? So when we look at these miracles, what signs do we see that he is more than a prophet, but is God himself and is the Messiah, the one to come and save? Okay? So we're not just saying that these are incredible miracles that we want to replicate. And we're not really going to take much time thinking about whether these happened or not. Because we've already looked at how God made the heavens and the earth. If he made the heavens and the earth, these are small fry. We already looked at how Jesus was resurrected from the dead. The miracle of all miracles. If he was resurrected from the dead, miracles that we see here, of course he can do them. So what I'd like us to focus on is just a couple of miracles. And in those miracles, I want us to look at what are the signs? What are the signs in these miracles that help us to see who Jesus is? And actually, that makes a much bigger impact on us today than just trying to replicate them. But we will look at that in a couple of weeks' time as well. Okay? So that's where we're at. That's what we're going to be doing this morning. I would like us to look at two miracles. The very first miracle of Jesus, when Jesus turned water into wine at Cana. 
And then uh, we're going to go to John 2, when Jesus calmed the storm. And we're going to look at what these two miracles say about who Jesus is and what impact they now should make in our lives. Okay? So, let me pray. And then we'll go on. Father God, thank you uh, that we serve a God of miracles. We serve you, our, our living King, Jesus, our, our living hope. And we thank you, God, for these incredible miracles as we look through the New Testament, as we look through the Gospels and we see your miracles, Jesus, that you did while you're here on the earth in bodily form. And they amaze us. But Lord, I pray that they would do more than just amaze us. I pray that we'd leave this place not just going, oh, wow, wasn't that an incredible miracle? I pray that we'd leave this place going, oh, wow, isn't God an incredible God? Isn't Jesus our most awesome savior? Isn't he reliable? Isn't he king over my life? I'm so glad I get to serve him. I'm so glad that he rules over all creation. I'm so glad that he came. Lord, I pray that the truth that sets us free would come out of these miracles and uh, we'd apply it into our hearts and leave this place full of joy as a result. Thank you, God, that you're with us. We pray, Father, that you'd speak into our hearts with power. Amen. Okay, so if you do have a Bible with you, turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 2. We're going to start there in verse 1. And we'll go to verse 12. It says this, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first when the cheaper wine, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. Some of you feel like a a big party right now is the last thing that you would want. You really don't feel like having an amazing time. In fact, you probably feel, some of you, like you'd much rather sit in your own and, and just be miserable. Maybe you feel ashamed to be around your friends and family right now. Maybe you feel unattractive or like you just, you couldn't, do the kind of life and soul of the party thing tonight. Well, although this miracle is significant for all of us, 
I want you to particularly listen up, okay? So I think when some people hear, we're going to talk about a miracle where Jesus turns water into wine and there's a great big party. You're thinking, oh man, that's like the last thing I want to hear. Well, this message is for you if you're feeling like that. This message is particularly for you. Jesus finds himself in Cana at this wedding, at this great celebration, and the, the, the wine runs out. Gutted. Wine's gone. We're having a great party, but the wine is done. And Jesus' mum does one of those things where she says something and she's clearly asking him to do something without actually asking him to do it. You know the kind of thing. Women in your life can, can do that to you, right? They, they always get away with that and you know what they're saying. So you, you, know, you think, I better do that. Jesus, interestingly though, he replies, my hour has not yet come. I think I used to assume that what Jesus was talking about here was, I'm not actually, I'm not ready to start my ministry. I'm not ready to get going yet. But actually that that can't be what's happening because he's already called some of the disciples to follow him. And actually when we read John carefully, we start to realise that this little phrase, the hour, is a really important one in John. And the more it comes up, the more that is revealed about this little phrase, the hour that is coming. He's pointing forward to something way better than the miracle. He's pointing forward to his death and his resurrection. He wants to be clear what I'm about to do might be impressive, but it's nothing compared to what I will do when the hour comes, when this moment arrives. And these hints just keep coming through, John. They keep coming, they keep coming. It's like watching someone um, draw a sketch. And as they draw out that sketch, you you might start to guess it. Oh, I I think I see something revealing. uh, Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Maybe, is he a prophet? What is this? What is this? Oh, he's added in that. Wow. And it's kind of like a, a revelation that takes place slowly as you read through the Gospel of John. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Maybe go to the Gospel of John, and uh, it's very hard to do this, of course, but pretend you don't know the ending. Okay? <laughs> pretend you don't know what's coming, you don't know what the hour is. And, and imagine what it would be like if you'd never heard of Jesus, you never knew what the whole story was about. As you read John, there's this glorious revelation, just increasing of who Jesus is and what he's about, what he's coming to do. Um... William Hendrickson said this about John's gospel. What Rembrandt did for art, John, under the Spirit's guidance, does for religion. His gospel really is this beautiful uh, unveiling of the glory of Jesus. Jesus takes six big water jars. Now don't think little jars in your kitchen. Okay, Think massive water jars. Think huge containers, big enough. For all these guests, I don't know how many guests there were there, but lots of guests must have been gathered around there looking to purify themselves. Now, it seems like they hadn't actually been used when you read the story, but that's what they should have been used for, for the purification before they come to eat at the wedding. These containers and all this symbolic purification at the wedding in Cana, it actually reminds us of a much uh, bigger problem than just, I need to wash my hands before I come to eat. There's a a much bigger problem at play here. And and actually, John is very deliberate in the way that he talks about these containers that were used for purification. He, He is very specific about telling us about 
these containers, he reminds us that there's enormous, an enormous problem. We are all covered in the muck of sin. We are shamed. And we never quite make it in the cut of life. We, we do not measure up to the glory of God. In fact, we get nowhere near. It reminds us of the seriousness of our sin. It reminds us that we all need purified. John is keen to tell us that the water Jesus turns into wine is quite scandalously the water that should have been set up for the Jewish rites of purification. Because all people required to be purified, to be cleared from the muck of their sin and their shame, to be welcomed into God's house, to be welcomed into his presence. So when John in chapter 1, right before this story, comes baptizing with water, a water for repentance, it's a symbolic baptism of something that is about to come in the one that John says comes to baptize not just with water, but the Holy Spirit, with God's presence. So John tells us in 2.11, the miracle was the first of the signs. And it wasn't just that the hour was to come, but he's revealing something of himself here. And that first clue is the, is the purification rites. But he also says that the Son comes to, and he's manifesting his glory here at Cana at this first sign. And so the night Jesus is betrayed, when we look forward, when we go towards the end of the gospel, we see that Jesus turns his face to heaven and he, he, interestingly, he uses both those phrases. Father, the hour has come. It's arrived. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. The manifestation of his glory in its fullness will take place at this, the hour. This is what John has been building up to. The beginning of the gospel. We see this sign in Cana when after a three-day journey with the first disciples that he's gathered, he does this incredible miracle of turning water into wine. Then at the end of the gospel, we see that after three days, on the third day, that Jesus didn't just pour out his blood on the Friday, but he rose again to new life on the Sunday. John is bookending from this miracle to the greatest miracle, the miracle of miracles, the resurrection. He's showing us here at Cana this first sign that Jesus had come to pour out the choice, his choicest of wine, his own blood on the Friday after Passover on the Thursday night where they would have shared wine together and they had that first communion. And then on the Sunday, he rises again from the dead. The glory of God revealed in his crucifixion and his resurrection in the cross and the tomb. So this sign at Cana is much more than just a great miracle, a show of his power. It reveals something to us about what he had come to do, his great mission to come and save us.
And actually, this wedding party was a great choice. Because we know that it doesn't just end at the resurrection. Jesus has risen from the dead, but now we are in this period between his resurrection and ascension into heaven. So he is at the right hand of the Father and he is giving us access into the presence of God. The Holy Spirit has come at Pentecost, so we meet here in the presence of God, but it is not complete. We know that. One day there's going to be a great wedding banquet. And that wedding banquet will take place after Jesus returns and he takes us home and we are invited up to the table of God and he serves us the choicest of wine, Revelation says. See, Jesus was announcing, I'm much more than any prophet. I am the fulfillment of all the prophets. I have come to purify, to cleanse. I have come to remove your sin and invite you into the presence of God by my blood. And I'm inviting you to the greatest party that there will ever be. The resurrection supper. The marriage of the lamb to his church. See, we're betrothed. It's a promise that will never fail. And one day, we will get up to the table. And we'll drink the choicest of wines. And we'll toast to Jesus, our King. Who made it all happen through his death and his resurrection. And forever we'll be with him in eternity. Fern Poitras in his book, The Miracle of Jesus, said this. Just as Christ changed the water into wine, so he changed the entire course of history from one era to another. The water of shadows in the Old Testament became the wine of fulfillment in the New Testament. At this wedding, Jesus is announcing he has arrived to invite the world to a great big wedding, a wedding where we get to be his bride and he is the groom. It's the happiest groom there ever was because he is totally content with who we are. He loves us, he adores us and he looks at us and he sees pure linen, righteousness, clothed in righteousness. So those of you who are feeling ashamed, those of you who are feeling like, oh, I just, I could never go to that party. I wouldn't want to go to that party. I want to just hide in the corner somewhere. No, you have all access into the party. In fact, you are the bride at this wedding party. And so no more shame. No more sin. It's gone forever. Jesus adores you. You are his bride. He adores you. 750 years earlier, Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied this. On this mountain of the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich foods, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. He's pointing to two moments. He's pointing to the death and resurrection of Jesus, but he's also pointing forward to that final consummation, that final moment where we all come into the presence of God and dwell with him forever. And so we read in Revelation 19, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints and the angel said to me write this blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb and he said to me 
These are the true words of God. The kingdom of God has come. Jesus, God's son, has replaced these symbols of purification in water with our actual purification by his blood. If you've put your faith in Jesus, if you call yourself a Christian today, that is what has happened. He poured out his blood for your purification. He took your sin and he replaced your sin with his righteousness. He took it on himself and he took the punishment that we deserved on the cross and then he swapped it. Martin Luther calls it the great exchange where you received righteousness. And he looks at you now and he sees garments of righteousness clothed in white. You're no longer dirty. You're no longer ashamed. You no longer have to doubt yourself when you come into the presence of God because you are his bride. It's glorious. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. I heard a pastor tell a story once of um, a couple who had been going through some marriage counselling. They'd only been married a short time. And um, they were struggling with sex. And so they're kind of talking this through with him. And um, it, it turns out that she had been abused as uh, she was growing up. Um, an uncle had um, been doing things to her that were just horrendous. And so when it came to having sex with her husband, she, she was scarred. She, was, she felt ashamed. She felt dirty. She felt like she couldn't come and, to him and, and have sex. Just couldn't do it. And so it comes out during the meeting and uh, the husband walks out. And the pastor's kind of panicking like, oh no, that's the worst thing you could have done. Why did you walk out? 15 minutes later, he comes back and he walks in. And he's bought a white robe. And he walks up to her and he places it around her. He wraps it up. He says, in Christ, you're as white as snow. That's what Jesus has done for us. If you've been sinned against like that, or you feel ashamed for your own sin, it's gone in the name of Jesus. He's declared you righteous. It's gone. Jesus had done that for her and he's done that for you. Your sin and your shame are gone forever. You're clothed in righteousness. He has removed the shame of your past. Those accusations in your head. The sins you think you will never be able to stop. It's all gone in the sight of God. When we read about the sign at Cana, we see our Messiah inviting us to a new life of freedom from condemnation and shame. We're his perfect betrothed, waiting for the wedding feast in the new creation where we will dwell in his perfect love forever. All right, let's turn to the time when Jesus calmed the storm. So we're going to go to Matthew 8. So we're skipping back. And I'm reading from verse 23. When he got into the boat and his disciples followed him, suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves. And it was completely calm. 
the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Now I want you to imagine being on that boat. You're being thrown about by the waves. It seems totally out of control and there's absolutely nothing you can do. The people on board with you are experienced fishermen. And they are panicking. So you know there's something up. I was once on a, a flight um, going in, flying uh, into Chicago. We are just coming into land. And the cabin crew were panicking because the turbulence was so bad. That's when you know you're in trouble. <laughs> well, it's the same here. You know you're in trouble when the fishermen are panicking. There was a serious problem. Um, it pro- ours was really nothing like this really uh, we were very safe at the end had a nice smooth landing but uh, it did feel pretty scary at the time. so it's not likely these guys are exaggerating and uh, Jesus is doing what he's having a sleep he's snoring away maybe he's sleeping and so they're about to drown and they shout Lord save us Actually, specific words to use is save us, Lord. We are perishing. It's a matter of life and death. And the disciples are kind of calling out in faith. Now, interestingly, throughout uh, the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, when we see that um, Jesus is addressed as Lord, it's usually a statement of faith. It's not just kind of like master or uh, like I'm, you know, I'm subject to you, teacher. It's not just like that. It's actually a little more in Matthew, not in the other Gospels, but in Matthew, it's a statement of faith. It's a, almost like a prayer. Lord, I believe you have the power to come and save me from whatever I need to save from. So it might be for healing. It might have been for this kind of thing where they're crying out for his rescue uh, out on this boat. It's a panic-stricken an instinctive cry of help. They say that even atheists, when they're on a plane that is going down, start to pray. And I think it's that kind of prayer. It's an instinctive, ah, oh, Lord, help us. Now the sea takes on a really interesting role in this miracle. The sea is used throughout the Bible as this place where people are swallowed up into death. It was used to demonstrate this fragile state that we have. Because many boats would go out into the sea and just not be seen again. And so it was this sign of death. The sea would swallow you up into death. It's also the place where there's this mythical sea monster called Leviathan. And we can read about it, particularly in Job and a couple of other places in the Old Testament. And it's this mythical creature who is thought to be lurking in the sea, ready to swallow us up. And the imagery that's used is that we are going through this life kind of like on our own little journey on a boat. And beneath the waves, somewhere lurking, waiting for us, is Leviathan. And he's going to swallow us up into death. In other words, death is waiting for all of us. It's unavoidable. As much as we might try and think that it's not, it is. And actually it could happen at any time, even when we feel totally safe from it. It could happen at any time. We think, oh, these other people get cancer. Other families are inflicted with illness. Another person might receive, might uh, have a tragic accident and die. Someone else might have a heart attack until it happens to you, until your family. The reality is, 
death happens to us all. And no matter how much we try and cover that up, no matter uh, how many times we uh, think that we are going to try and avoid it by whatever health kick we're on, going to the gym regularly, uh, just blocking it out your mind, having Botox, whatever it is, it's never something that we can avoid in the end. At the end of Job's horrendous encounter with pain, suffering and loss, God reminds him in Job 41 that Leviathan cannot be avoided. He says this, Can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. The threat of death is there for all of us. As a guy I used to play rugby with, went out on a, on a night out, no drugs involved, didn't seem to be particularly drunk that night, went to brush his teeth for, for what we know, and that was it. Fell down and died in his bathroom. Went to his funeral, was so sad, this young guy just suddenly taken from the world. Suddenly he dies. Someone I knew from school is now 33 and battling cancer for the third time and each time it's been life-threatening. I'm sure you could think of many people in your lives who have either died or have had a a life-threatening illness. Maybe it's you. Death is around the corner. Leviathan lurks and we need to be aware that That is the reality of this life. It's short. After Jesus calms the storm, the disciples look around, bewildered, and they say, what kind of man is this? Well, not just a man, but also God himself. Only God can command the waves, and they listen. This miracle displays that Jesus wasn't just a prophet, who God is doing some miracles through. He is actually the power to command nature to do something and it will do it. Psalm 107 says this, They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wit's end and they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm in a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. This is Jesus. This points forward to Jesus, the one who brings us out of distress, who stills the storms to a whisper, who guides us to our haven, who saves people from the jaws of death. Jesus was pointing the disciples beyond the miracle. He's hoping that all we who would hear this story afterwards, they wouldn't be people who only go, wow, isn't that amazing that he subdued the storm? But actually they would see that 
at the cusp of death in this watery existence of, of death, this symbolism of death where a Leviathan could come at any moment and swallow them up and take them away and it looks like that's what's going to happen. Jesus steps in as their saviour and he says, no, I will rescue you from death. But actually there's much more going on than that. He wants them to be amazed not at a temporary rescue from death, but a rescue from death that is permanent. Leviathan was going to come again for the disciples. They would die. But he points them to a permanent rescue, a rescue where Jesus is mauled by Leviathan himself. Romans 5, 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God who is omnipotent, whose power never ends, does exactly what we would not expect God to do. He becomes weak, even to the point of death. And in doing so, he defeats death. He shows his power over death and is resurrected on the third day. And we say, hallelujah, we are rescued from death forever. We no longer need to fear death. Death, where is your sting? Yes, death can come at any moment. But those of us who have put our trust in Jesus no longer need to fear death. We need to remember the words of Jesus in the midst of the storm. He shows his power over it. He hasn't silenced the waves at this point. So if you're in the midst of a storm and you feel like death could come at any moment, or you feel like life is just a terrible storm. You're just getting buffeted around all the time. He said, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Why did he ask that? Because he is the one who can calm our storms. And one day, he will finally see all of those storms cease forever. He's won that battle. So we know it's guaranteed. So even if you're going through a storm right now, I can't guarantee it's going to finish today, but it will finish one day because Jesus has the power over it and he is for you and he will rescue you. He will take you home to an eternal, everlasting life. Even the winds and the waves obey him. No matter what you are going through, Jesus has shown his power to save you. His arm is not too short to save. He will rescue you. Jesus' miracles are more than the miracles. He is not just demonstrating his power. That is one thing he is demonstrating. Praise God. He's in, he's, he uh, has power that was, will last forever that has no end to it. But that's not all he's showing. He's not only displaying that. He's displaying the gospel. He's displaying the good news. He's displaying to us that all the problems of our life, all the difficulties, all the pain, all the suffering, it will end. And he's also displaying that every promise that we look to in the Old Testament 
we know finds its yes and its amen in Jesus in the new covenant. This new kingdom that has come, this promise that is unfailing through the cross and the resurrection. John said, um, or Jesus said, in the book of John, into the world, he came into the world to testify to the truth. It reveals to us the truth. That's what the miracles do. And that's the most important thing about these miracles. The truth about him that sets us free. Let me pray.